This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's an eternal question. How to grow your business in a mature market with lots of established players. The defense software market is as mature as any, and yet DOD has a pervasive need to modernize its software to take into account cloud computing, the need to refresh the military strategic offset, and a host of other reasons. For the big picture of what's affecting the DOD software market, we turn to Frost and Sullivan industry analyst Brad Curran. He spoke with Tom Temin. And even though it is a mature market, there is this modernization drive. So how would you characterize the market, maybe starting with a sense of the dollars involved in software acquisition? Just for new prime contracts in the last year, there's been over $5 billion on the unclassified side. And so that includes both the traditional, more proprietary software to keep combat systems updated and operational, and also bringing in commercial technologies, cloud computing and as-a-service functions and things like that with more traditional commercial software companies. So it's a large market and mature, as you stated, but still growing. And you list in this latest report a number of factors that are affecting the way that it's buying software and the types of services it's buying. There's some strategic influences on software. Run through some of those for us. That's right. It's all about information sharing and collaboration. So on the tactical side, it's you know that desire to tighten that sensor-to-shooter kill chain. On the enterprise side, it's to collaborate better so that resources are better utilized and, uh, you know, different organizations can share information quickly and easily. And, of course, with the intelligence community, where there are huge volumes of data, it's very important both to be able to find what you're looking for, do some analysis now with the help of artificial intelligence tools, and most importantly, share that information on a uh, timely basis. And there seem to be two not contradictory, but parallel tracks going on here. And one is, as you mentioned, DOD seeking a new type of commercially available software. A lot of this is in the cloud, software as a service. But at the same time, you mentioned the Army has established a software factory in Austin, Texas. And you've got AFWorks and you've got other, maybe there's three things going on. One, standard commercial offerings that they're adopting. Two, developing through these kind of factories, DevSecOps, and three, looking for innovators that are not the traditional vendors, and maybe explain how that all ties in and what vendors have a shot at some of this business. That's right. You mentioned the Army Futures Command and the Defense Innovation Unit, you know, all looking to kind of find that next palanter, so to speak, and find those innovative companies that can really have an operational impact almost immediately. So it's good for companies to participate in those activities. You also have very large companies, Microsoft and Dell and Amazon and Oracle and VMware and the rest, you know, that are providing the same types of services that large commercial organizations need just to run day-to-day operations. And then the tactical side, you have to have a survivable network. You have to have a network that can survive in all kinds of environments both physically and if there's hostile electronic warfare or cyber attacks going on. So all of those areas are proceeding simultaneously and all are very important and some crossover as well. And in looking at the contract funding by department, you have the three major armed services, Navy, Marine Corps. Of those three is the largest, but the largest software market of all is joint service. That's almost half of the total addressable market there. Is that mostly JADC2, 
or what else is going on in that large, almost half the market that's joint? JATC2 in the last couple of years has come on strong, you know, with billion dollar contracts being let. That is one of the big reasons. But also the DOD CIO and the Joint Artificial Intelligence Organization all have a lot more influence than they used to in an effort to kind of have standard software across all the services, again, both to save money and to improve operations and information sharing. So we've seen the joint commands and the joint organizations have a lot more influence in setting standards and in sort of twisting the arm a little bit of the service commanders to get more standardized software and share information. We're speaking with Brad Curran. He's an industry analyst with Frost & Sullivan. And recently, we had a story here about a very small startup company, about 15 people, that landed a really large IDIQ with the Air Force, pursuant to the Air Force's JADC2, 10 years, but about a billion dollars over 10 years for their part of JADC2 at the Air Force. What is the best way for emergent or contractors new to the defense market that are willing to overcome what it takes to get a contract? What's the best advice for them to grab hold of this changing and shifting market we've been describing? Yeah, as we mentioned, start out with Defense Innovation Unit, with Army Futures Command, Air Force Research Lab, Air Force Works, you know, and, and a lot of those contracts at first could be very, very small. But once you show, you know, that you're making a good contribution and that the software can be integrated across several different networks or platforms, you know, you have a, a much better chance of involvement. And then the other side is stick with the traditional companies, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon, General Dynamics, the other large traditional defense firms partner with them because, you know, they're looking to improve the software for the systems that they have. And in many cases, they're able to bring in some commercial solutions. And then the third leg is, you know, the big commercial companies, uh, Microsoft, Amazon, Oracle, and the rest. They have mature established products, but they also need assistance from time to time, especially with engineering and integration, because they're not really uh, up to date on some of the nuances of the traditional defense market and the requirements, the unique requirements of DOD, not just security, but for you know organization and cultural issues as well. And of course, across the board, firms that can provide artificial intelligence upgrades, cloud computing, processing exploitation and dissemination tools for the intelligence community, all of those sorts of things are in high demand. And if you go the route of, say, through AFWorks or through the Defense Innovation Unit, it's probably a little less friction to get your own direct contract because it would likely be through the other transaction authority. That's absolutely correct. And not only that, they've come up with other contract vehicles as well. They've got in, you know, the Silicon Valley and the Austin and Boston technology communities involved and come up with additional small but non-traditional contracting vehicles. But the corner has been turned. You know, DOD is open to these types of things now. They realize to stay competitive with our near peers and against non-state actors because of cybersecurity and, and other problems, you know, they need to, again, innovate and adopt software at the speed of relevance. And to do that, you know, they have to engage more with the uh, commercial software companies. And as you mentioned, DOD is also training their own uniform people as well. 
you know, the, the thought behind it is once they're out in the field and they come up against an unexpected problem, either because of a software glitch that needs to be patched or because of adversary activity, they want to have uniform people in the field that can react quickly and make adjustments to that software and not have to you know, wait and go back to the factory, so to speak. Sure. So the grandfathers in uniform program things in ADA, then there was a whole generation of totally outsourced software. Now the grandsons in uniform are programming in Java. Right, exactly. And, and in the last decade or so, you know, we've realized that with an army of contractors required to set up IT networks in the field, that won't go away. We'll still need that uh, services and support, but it can't depend completely on contractors once we're out in the field. And just a final question, how much legacy code is there to be converted, factored, modernized, whatever? I mean, there were some very ancient languages that existed up into the 2000s. Is any of that still left? There's still a lot of legacy code. So those types of services are invaluable. And most importantly, the engineering and integration services to be able to get those legacy systems to talk with more you know, modern and, and up-to-date programs, especially for one-off isolated weapon systems or surveillance systems that are very unique and vital, <laughs> but still have to be uh, upgraded and, and become more resilient, both against adversary activity, but also to enable more sharing of the data. Brad Curran is an industry analyst with Frost and Sullivan. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has you know, been at the highest levels and all. But I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether 
you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense. And I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, You know, from historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is 
I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Pop quiz. What can you buy for $3.99? Not a latte, but for less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can get all your favorite music ad-free. While other streaming services jack up their prices, Live One's membership is only $3.99 per month, and you can lock in that price for a full year. Join now to get the best deal in music with zero ads, unlimited skips, and maximum audio quality. Get the music you love at a price that fits into your budget with Live One Plus. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.